Yeah, on. Album episode number fifty-two. What is it in Spanish? Cinco y dos, I think. What is it in French? You might know that better, team. What is it in French? Uh, I think I can only go up to like twenty-five nowadays. <laughs> Formerly fluent, though, if I'm not mistaken. At one point, yeah, yeah, I did a, I did a little study abroad out there. Uh, in college and yeah, at one point I could, you know, get my way around pretty nicely, but, uh, now it, my French is only good uh, when I'm drunk. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe that's because during your study abroad, that was your status. Most of the, uh, most of the time. Yeah, that's fair. Um, when you, when you, you know, sort of faintly know slash remember a foreign language, I feel like the less, you know, your brain gets in the way, the better. So therefore, you know, it's good to rely on consumption when you want your brain to get out of the way, right? That's a good theory. It's a good theory. I like it. I like it. See, the long overdue Kate Bush episode. <laughs> yeah. this, this, here comes my hour and 10 minute attempt to get you to not necessarily like, because I don't think it's fair to get anyone to like something. But maybe to try and get you to understand the the genius that is Ms. Kate Bush. I don't know how it's going to go. I'm 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 excited. I'm nerve sighted. I'm I'm excited <laughs> slash nervous. Nerve sighted. Well, I you know uh, all I can say here from the onset is I gave it a go. It, it's a this episode episode fifty two. It's quite the deal here I, on, on the deal here. You you've made two twins in an album history. Uh, with this selection do you know what that what that is well i think it's that we're going to look at an album plus a song i know that that's that's part of the uh the history being made but that, i'm assuming that's not what you're referring to yeah not what i'm going for what i'm going for is that this is the first album that you've chosen that i did not own in my library either either physically or digitally i um in fact i sort of have had to weave in kind of an interesting way to, to, to play the uh, preview tr clips because for the first time, uh, really either of our picks, I, I don't actually have in my library. So two twins in an album history being made today, Nub. Well, that's, uh, hopefully we'll change that. Um, actually, I got somebody here who might have a thing or two to say about that. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I, I actually live with one of Kate Bush's biggest fans. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to bring her in here for a second, if that's okay. Sure. All right, here we go. This is in, incoming right now is one of Kate Bush's biggest fans. And we certainly don't mean biggest in terms of size or stature. <laughs> Let's just make that abundantly clear. Come on in. Hey, buddy. How you doing? It's, this, is, this is my niece, uh, uh, Beeks, has joined the podcast. Hey, buddy. Hi. Are those headphones staying on okay? Yeah. So let me ask you a question. So you like Kate Bush? Yeah. Why do you like Kate Bush, Beeks? 
Uh, she's a good singer, good dancer, and I want to meet her someday. <laughs> uh, is she alive? That's a question yeah. for Nubs. Oh, she is. Yeah. Okay. Blake, you mentioned you want to meet Kate Bush someday. Uh, you know, she doesn't she doesn't meet a lot of people. She's she kind of keeps it to herself. But you, know, where would we have to go if we wanted to meet Kate Bush? England. Oh, she's in England. Well. I'm sure someday you'll visit England. So you said you like when she dances. Where have you seen Kate Bush dance exactly? Uh, I watched some videos um, on my tablet. Yeah. What does she dance like? Um, better than me. What? I've seen you dance. I think you're pretty good, to be honest. <laughs> Don't sell yourself short, Beaks. You know, you're a tremendous dancer. Yes, she does. She does like cartwheels, and I'm not that good at cartwheels. And she does like flips, and I can't really do that. Stuff. Kate Bush does cartwheels and flips. Sometimes. Man, maybe I need to check more of this chick out. You know? Hey Blake, uh, why don't you share with Uncle T? First of all, where do we listen to Kate Bush mostly? Where Where do we spend time listening to Kate Bush? Uh, in Daddy's pie. In the car for sure. And, and why don't yeah. you tell him one of the things we do on our podcast is we do like our top five favorite songs. Why don't you do your top three favorite Kate Bush songs? What are they? All right, go ahead. Um, so my first one is Babushka. My second, Run Up That Hill. And my third, Wow. Wow. Babushka running up that hill and wow. <laughs> I, and I'll, I'll say wow, uh, because I can almost guarantee you that, uh, I mean, you're amazing for many reasons, but one of the reasons is I think you're the only eight-year-old in the United States of America that can name three Kate Bush songs. What do you think? <laughs> Don't you think that's pretty cool? I think that's super cool. There are some other people that are eight that, that knows one of their three top Kate Bush songs. Well, who else knows Kate Bush? Your friends at school know Kate Bush songs? No. I guarantee you. I guarantee you they're not that cool, Beeks. I guarantee you. So, Blake, uh, what would you like? You said you want to meet Kate Bush. What would you like? If you met her, what would you tell her? Uh, I would be so excited. And I would say, Kate Bush, is that where you? And then she'd say, yes. Who would you rather meet? Taylor Swift or Kate Bush? Uh, um, Kate Bush. Wow. Who would you oh, rather meet? Have I done a good job parenting or what? <laughs> who, would <you laughs> rather, who would you rather meet? Minnie Mouse or Kate Bush? Kate Bush. Really? Okay. So let me ask you this one. Who would you rather meet? Wonder Woman or Kate Bush? Kate Bush. What? Jeez, oh, Pete. Big fan. <laughs> All right. Last one. Who would you rather meet? Jesus Christ himself or Kate Bush? I don't know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good for you, Beaks. All right. Well, hey, buddy, I'm glad you joined the podcast today. That was a pleasant surprise. You're welcome. <laughs> what else have you been listening to? Any other bands or songs or here? Here, why don't we uh, let's BTS. here. Let's do a quick, uh, you know, let's just get that going. And, uh, you know, uh, Beaks, what's round and round for you? So any other bands, any other songs? What do you got, buddy? Uh, I like BTS. BTS? Who's that? BTS is a K-pop group, yep. Yeah. Okay, all right. Who would you rather meet, BTS or Kate Bush? Kate Bush. <laughs> I don't believe you. I don't believe you, Biggs. Hey, I want to meet Kate Bush. Oh, 
Wow. That's, I mean, that's impressive. Okay. What else have you been listening? Any other bands, any other songs besides Kate Bush and BTS? Of course. You've been listening to any Blackpink. Phil- Blackpink. Blackpink, another K-pop group. Yep. The okay. girls are very into K-pop right now. <laughs> okay. All right. Have you been listening to any Philip Glass? Who is that guy? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Why did you even ask that question then? Well, I, I don't think you'd like Philip Glass, you know? I don't okay. even know who he is. Okay. Last one. Have you been listening to any wigwam? <laughs> you know what I'm naming off? You know what I'm naming off, Beaks? I'm naming off all these weird bands that your daddy likes. I'll, I'll play them for you sometime, Blake. It's like super weird music. Tomorrow instead of Kate Bush, we'll listen to some wigwam. Yeah, do me a favor. Next Wait, time. Yeah. Does the songs have like poop in it? Bye. Poop in it? <laughs> well, some of them do, actually. All right, get out of here. <laughs> Say bye to Uncle T. Bye-bye. Uh, hey, buddy, thank you for joining the podcast. That was awesome. You're welcome. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Good luck in your quest to meet Kate Bush. Well, look, as you well know, there's always a method behind my madness. Now, if you if you can't get behind Kate Bush after hearing from Blake, one of her biggest fans, <laughs> then just sell me right. See, you now know? you're not that this just isn't fair because now... <laughs> You know, if I if I don't get on board here, I've not only disappointed you, which I, you know, medium care about. The, the bottom line is I, I've disappointed Beaks. And Look, that, that, that means a lot more to me than disappointing you, frankly. Look, so you're not hurting me. You're hurting Beaks. Yeah, this okay. is I, I see your trick. I see your trickery. <laughs> All of a sudden, out of nowhere, you bring Beaks on to put the pressure on me. Mm-hmm. Well, all right, well, I know you that uh, you already took Blake round and round, right? So. Let's uh, take each other around and around right here. Let's do it. Go ahead, dude. We're making all kinds of history today, Dub. This is also our first double round and round. So, <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> lots, of, lots of history being made on uh, the old podcast today, buddy. Historical episode. T, what are three albums you've been uh, enjoying of late? Well, I got three ones that are pretty interesting, nonetheless. Uh, the first is by a band called Shun. Shun. Ah, I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah, Shun is uh, our, our older brother's band. He, uh, they just put out their debut record available on digital and vinyl. Is there a CD version? I don't believe there is. I don't think there's CDs of it. I mean, we both got vinyl, of course. And yeah, there's of course digital, but yeah, I, I don't think there's CDs. CDs are so, you know, 2005 now. Yeah. So, um, they're a band out of Asheville, North Carolina, and, uh, they have put out their debut record. It's a little bit of a, I guess a sludgy kind of desert rock type thing. I think they, they kind of remind me of Eagles of death metal personally, really like the singer's voice. And, uh, obviously our brother, uh, Scotty contributes with guitar, backing vocals, and a lot of songwriting contributions. So, well done, Scotty. And check out Shun. Uh, That's my first round and round. The second is the latest release just came out this week from Umphreys McGee. And this is very cool. I'm actually very excited about this. This, The the album is called, now, now take a breath here, You Walked Up Shaking in Your Boots, But You Stood Tall and Left a Raging Bull. That's the, that's the name of the record. This is a new studio album to you? Oh, you don't know about this. Oh, no, I don't. I don't. You're going to like this, buddy. So 
for several years now, Umphreys McGee has been introing their shows with these uh, instrumental pieces. And, you know, fans that follow their set list and follow the band, I'm talking about like Cat Shot and Leave Me Las Vegas and Nipple Tricks and La Blitz and Gurgle and October Rain. These are, you know, basically intro pieces where the band comes out. There's usually kind of some sort of fade in or backing track, and then they join the backing track. It's a little bit of a warm up jam to kind of get things going, usually a handful of minute, you know, if not shorter instrumental. And what they've done is they've done studio versions of all these instrumental songs, which is awesome because some of them are really cool and really good. So props to those guys. They're always doing cool stuff. And uh, and uh, I'll say it one more time. You walked up shaking in your boots, but you stood tall and left a raging bull. The instrumental intro song collection from the great Humphreys McGee. And the third one, another one of my favorite bands who also put out a unique album. This is Blinker the Star. And Jordan has put out a covers album, and it's called Arista. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff on here. You've got uh, Boz Skaggs, the Lido Shuffle. You've got Holiday by Madonna. Uh, you've got uh, Some Are Lakes, which is by the Canadian band Land of Talk. Uh, you've got uh, Love Comes Quickly by uh, one of my favorite groups, the Pet Shop Boys. And It's All Right by the Eurythmics. So some cool, I mean, Jordan and I match a lot on influences and it's part of why I'm such a big Blinker the Star fan. A lot of that comes through in his music, but paying some homage to some of his favorites on Arista. So three kind of unique selections for my round and round this week. Nubs, what do you got, buddy? That's a tasty collection right there. I definitely have to check out that Umphreys thing and the, the Blinker the Star thing sounds interesting as well. So. Nice work as usual. T first for me would be the album Moon Tan. T, do you know who that album is by? The album called Moon Tan. Is that Golden Earring? I think that is Golden Earring. Yeah, That's... great band. Great band out of uh, Denmark, right? Yeah, Danish, right? Danish band, yeah. Danish, yeah. Got a record store day copy of it, and I've been enjoying it. It's a very kind of eccentric, classic rock album with some prog leanings and really good musicianship. So, and just remember one other thing: a flute with no holes is not a flute. And a donut with no holes is a Danish. Yes. Thank you, Ty Webb. Absolutely. Second is an album by The Sin, which is Steve Nardelli and, and formerly Chris Squire from Yes. It actually was the band that Chris Squire was in pre-Yes. And uh, after Chris Squire died, Nardelli arranged uh, an excellent group of backing musicians and made an album called Trustworks that is just fantastic. It's not quite as good as the, the one that they did a couple of years before with Chris Squire, but still really, really good stuff from the sin. And then lastly, just kind of getting my metal on. And this is a, a really overlooked band off of century media records, which is the band shadows fall featuring lead singer, Brian fair, not to be confused with, you know, the Brian fair that we both know and love with be fair. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, uh, this is the, uh, one of their earlier albums of one blood and been listening to and enjoying that they're one of those metal bands that brings together the screaming vocals and the singing vocals. and. I don't know, dude. I'm always a sucker for that in my metal. So let's take the conversation now to someone who doesn't do a lot of screaming, although there might be dabbles in it in tonight's album. And that is Ms. Kate Bush, who I have to admit to you, I'm sort of head over heels in love with. I just have to say <laughs> it right now. You know, you had your man crush on Brendan Bayless. Well, I have like a legit, you know, love for Kate Bush. Crush, crush. Yeah. Yeah. Crush, crush. Exactly. But uh, definitely look forward to some of your 
first of all, I look forward to all the feedback you have tonight. I think it's going to be interesting. And your wonder story, I'm curious as to if and when you ever really heard Kate Bush. And It won't uh, be long. It won't be long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What we're, and what we're going to do on episode 52 is unique. We're going to actually do a quick review of her first single, which is Wuthering Heights uh, from 1977. And this is this is off of her first album, The Kick Inside. I actually dabbled in wanting to choose that album, but it it's such a different kind of deal that I decided to go with Hounds of Love because it is sort of her rather undisputed masterpiece. It's her best-selling album and um, something that's probably a little more tangible for you. If I would have just had you dive right in head first to The Kick Inside, you, you might have run screaming. But it is important to look at Wuthering Heights. It was a huge, huge moment in British music history and and obviously a huge moment for Kate Bush. So let's do some nerdy deets done dirt cheap. We'll look at both works and then we'll uh, get into some of your thoughts to you. I can't wait. So yeah, man, let's, uh, let's check in with old Brian Johnson here. Do a little nerdy deets. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some nerdy deets? All right. So Kate Bush, like we said, she debuted in 1977 with the kick inside. She was very young. Uh, she was 18 years old when she wrote the music for Wuthering Heights and uh, 19 years old when it came out. So this is a, an extremely young artist who was able to get a deal through EMI, which of course was the giant when you look at the UK in the 1960s, 70s and beyond. And there was really one key person in connecting Kate Bush to the rest of the world. And that person is David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. And David Gilmore, you know, heard some of her tapes, heard some of her music, kind of immediately saw something in her and said to the people at EMI, Hey, you know, you really should sign this artist. And I'm sure they were like, you mean this 18 year old girl? And so David Gilmore's endorsement was really significant. And literally out of nowhere, she comes along and releases Wuthering Heights as her debut single. It goes to number one on the UK singles chart and, and just becomes this pop culture moment as we'll talk about a little bit when we get into it. It Pitchfork actually in 2016 named Wuthering Heights the fifth greatest song of the 70s. So it just kind of shows you the role of the song in British culture. Fast forward a few albums later and kind of becoming an artist that didn't really do a lot uh, in terms of you know putting out albums every year. She took her time between records and Hounds of Love, which is actually her fifth studio album is what we're going to look at tonight. It was released on September 16th, 1985, produced, of course, by Kate Bush. She used an outside producer, Andrew Powell, for her first couple albums. And then like most true artists, she was like, no more of that. I want full creative control over everything I do. And she's produced every album that she's done ever since then. It was led by you know her biggest hit, aside from Wuthering Heights, and, and certainly in the US, her biggest hit, which is the first single, which is Running Up That Hill, in parentheses, A Deal With God. We'll talk about that idea when we get to uh, kind of the track by track. Cloud Busting, Hounds of Love, and The Big Sky rounded out the other three singles. So there's a total of four singles. This album was very, very commercially successful, which wasn't really Kate Bush's MO, but it did reach number one on the UK charts. It reached number 30 on the US charts, which, which was a huge accomplishment for Kate Bush to even crack the US charts, let alone finish with something that high. But of course, a hit lead single will do that for you for sure. A variety of musicians that contributed. Uh, Kate herself obviously does all the vocals. She contributed a lot of Fairlight synthesizer and she's a piano player. She, she sort of like think of her as the female version of Elton John early in her career, really writing songs on piano 
but becoming much more innovative, much more experimental as time would, would go on. And Hounds of Love really combines the experimentation with, like I said, her really her commercial pinnacle in a variety of markets. So looking at the, the musicians that joined her, some really notable people, Del Palmer, Stuart Elliott on the drums, Morris Pert on percussion. Is that Morris Pert or Morris Peart? <laughs> right. <laughs> this is Morris Pert, P-E-R-T. Oh, okay. Yeah, good question. I guess in the UK, you just say it the way it's spelled, yeah? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Two times platinum in the United Kingdom. It sold a million records there at peak. It sold 206,000 albums in the US. So did very, very well. And, and, and like I said, is really kind of seen as her, her masterpiece, if you will. You can find it on a variety of best of lists and, you know, people trying to capture some of the best albums of all time. You will see Hounds of Love on, on a lot of those lists, both in the UK and in the US. See, that is Kate Bush uh, in, in a nutshell. I want to hear your Kate Bush story as we dive into the wonder stories on episode 52. All right, T. Well, after Hounds of Love, Kate Bush had a compilation called The Whole Story. So what is your Kate Bush whole story? <laughs> well, it's sort of, uh, you know, a half story, I guess. But, uh, you know, my uh, exposure to Kate Bush's music has been fairly limited. And that's not really for any other reason than, you know, I, I just haven't sort of gotten around to it. I've you know, you've had an affinity for her for years and I've been meaning to, you know, try and understand it. And, uh, this was a good opportunity to sort of force me to do it. So thank you for that. It's always nice. You know, you, uh, you made me this really cool compilation. I think that this was when I was living in New York city, maybe. And, you know, we were starting to make music together again, the, you know, through Anders Orange stuff. And we were really getting kind of back aligned on, um, on kind of bands that we were enjoying and things that we were discovering. And, you know, even though we were living apart, I think it was a time where we were done with college and we were starting to think about making music together. And I remember you made me like, almost like, uh, almost like I was your girlfriend, you know, you made me a, like a mixtape, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of a girlfriend mixtape. Yeah. 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 So. Uh, you know, we were, we were dating, uh, at the moment and, you know, we were ha <laughs> yeah. having a good run. We were in our honeymoon phase. We were in a good, a good place. Yeah. We were in a good phase. place. Yeah. 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 But no, you made me a, a two CD sort of mix of, you called it inspiration. And it was, you know, a lot of stuff that, um, you were listening to at the time. And I think it was kind of things that you were into that you probably suspected that I wasn't. And it was super cool. There was like Mogwai and uh, King Crimson and some Avenged Sevenfold and some Chevelle, you know, stuff, just real nub stuff, some Slayer, Taproot, uh, some new sticks, you know, cool stuff. And this was probably what, like probably like 2000 four or something you did this and uh you put two kate bush songs on there one of them was weathering heights the other was called king of the mountain that was really my first exposure 
Now I said earlier that I I didn't have this album in my library, but obviously I had those two songs because I've kept the inspiration uh, collection, of course, in my library uh, since that time. But I also uh, I did add cloud busting and running up that hill, so I did have those two songs in my collection, but obviously didn't have um, tonight's album. And uh, listen, we'll we'll get into it. This is a very fascinating, interesting, mad genius type artist that you know clearly, you know, early on established herself as a real uh, talent and a real sort of creative, experimental, art pop, I suppose, avant garde type of artist. And and anytime you can discover that type of thing, uh, you know, it's, it's cool. So really my, my uh, wonder story is pretty limited to that. Uh, but I do appreciate the opportunity that you provided here on episode 52 to plow through what was probably her most mainstream and most commercial record, I would imagine. And, uh, look forward to talking about it with you. So tell me, when did you discover, uh, when did you, when did you develop this, uh, crush? Uh, on uh, on Kate Bush. When did this happen? Probably a lot later than you think. You know, she existed for like 25 plus years before I really took notice. And I'll explain kind of how I was reviewing music as, as we've referenced before. This was in the mid 2000s. And I was reviewing and just stuff would come in every day. So every day, I'd, you know, I'd go to my desk and there'd be 20 envelopes of, of CDs, some from indie labels, some from major labels. And, you know, I kind of take the traditional open things up and look at it and see what it is and then add it to the stack. And then I would just spend all day sitting at my desk, listening to these things and trying to figure out what I was going to review that week. Well, one day from, you know, Sony music, I just got a copy of the new Kate Bush album, Ariel. And didn't think too much of it, honestly. You know, the press release came with it. I kind of glanced at it. Oh, Kate Bush. Okay, whatever. And and to me, it was just like, oh, I, I know she's been around for a while. And I, it looks like this is a big deal that she put out an album without realizing that that was actually the first album she had put out in basically like 13 years. And it was a double album. And so I finally got around to it, put in disc one. And the first song was this song called King of the Mountain. And I was just obsessed with the song. I, I remember it's one of those things where you listen to it the first time. I listened to it like 12 more times in a row. It had this haunting atmosphere, this amazing groove. You know, she was singing in this way that was just so different. And I didn't know much about her at all. I just knew that there was something about this song that was so captivating. And so I kind of had my like Wuthering Heights moment with King of the Mountain, you know, decades after she kind of first broke onto the music scene. And then got a little bit into the Ariel album, but really what happened was I, I got this DVD called Kate Bush Under Review. If you've ever seen these, there's this great series called Under Review, and it comes out of the UK, and it's got all these UK music journalists and a couple of musicologists and people bunch like of, that. A bunch of wankers, really. Total. It's a yeah. total wanker fest. <laughs> but they all just like totally dissect an artist's career, or they've done a few for certain albums. And they, there was one for Kate Bush, Kate Bush Under Review. And it, it is just... An incredible thing. I've watched it so many times and it does such a good job of explaining her and her significance and, you know, her winding road of her career. And once I watched that, I was really hooked because it introed me to all these different songs and, 
you heard Blake mention Babushka and Wow and some of these other songs. I mean, I was just captivated. I just was obsessively interested in all things Kate Bush. And that's where I really got into her. And, and the vastness of her catalog, you know, I, I, I'm into bands and artists that have a real vast catalog. They weren't the same when they started as when they ended and everything in the middle was different. And that's one of the many things that I just love and admire about Kate Bush as an artist. So, you know, that kind of started the the whole idea and bought everything very quickly and, and got into it in a really kind of passionate way. And I still watch that under review DVD all the time. I mean, it's one of those things that like, I pretty much have it memorized. So uh, what's interesting about Hounds of Love is it's, it's not one of my favorite Kate Bush albums. I, I really like it. But if, if all we did on this podcast would choose our favorite album from an artist, I would not have chosen Hounds of Love, but I eventually did get into the album. And, and like you said, it's a really fascinating work and one worthy of dissection for sure. So T, let's get into that dissection right now. I mean, we'll start with Wuthering Heights and then we'll work our way into the album. So I'm ready to drop that needle. Are you ready to drop that needle? I was born ready. Was All right. Yes, you were. Yes, you were. I drop it. All right. The year is 1977 and this 18, newly 19-year-old artist comes along and basically shocks the entire music industry with a single that would go to number one that nobody, nobody would have expected. And the song is Wuthering Heights. Uh, Maestro bringing in the, the bridge. I love it. So Kate actually sang the song in one take, which, which is remarkable considering the vocal performance and just the vocal styling of it. You know, that that's one thing that stands out. And then of course the, the closing Ian Barnson, very famous guitarist, uh, the guitar solo that takes the song out is certainly beloved. But I, th- I think what's really iconic about this is the video. And I don't know if you had a chance to watch it T, but, you know, she's doing this incredibly expressive dance and, and these facial expressions that must have been, you know, a mix between uh, interesting and maybe a little scary in 1977. But it's a presentation unlike anything else that came out at the time. So, see, what, what, what are your thoughts on this single? I mean, obviously, it's something very, very different. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can see why this was so unique at the time. You, you can see sort of why um, this caught a unique brand of listener. Uh, there's certainly a, a, an art element of this. And I think that that comes through, you know, visually in the way kind of that video um, was produced and was presented. You know, Kate Bush was very influenced by a lot of different things, uh, a true artist. And one of them was karate. And in fact, one of the things that early on, um, I saw that a lot of people sort of noticed about her is I forget the word, but there's this concept within those, that form of, uh, of martial arts within karate, where you sort of make a noise when you, uh, punch or when you kick or when you kind of use a move of aggression. And I guess, as you can imagine, Kate Bush had a very interesting, uh, sound when she did that and you know her voice is definitely 
interesting. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, what, what do Rush and Kate Bush, you know, sort of have in common? Because you probably wouldn't put those two in the same sentence a lot. Well, you sort of got to get used to the voice. And that takes a little bit of time, I think, for listeners that are trying to kind of feel out, you know, sort of her approach and how the voice really is an instrument. That's part of what I like about her. Um, but, you know, listen, Wuthering Heights uh, is, a, is a pretty amazing song, all in all. And you can tell why it caught on. I didn't know until now that she was 19 years old, you know, when this was released. Uh, I know that she started writing songs when she was like 10, which is always fascinating when, you know, artists are that way. But, you know, this became kind of a a worldwide hit uh, for her right out of the gate. Uh, That's always interesting uh, when you have artists who do that. And for her, it was probably great because it, you know, I think gave her a lot of car blanche. Um, and a lot of creative freedom, which obviously, you know, she took advantage of to the point where, you know, Hounds of Love, I mean, she basically recorded that at home, you know, and didn't want to be constrained by studio time and studio budgets and those type of things. So, you know, for an artist like her, it was probably huge to come out right away and have something that made a big splash, uh, both creatively and commercially uh, and truly kind of launching her ability to kind of take her unique approach. So yeah, it's, I think all in all, it's a, it's a really uh, interesting, fascinating uh, and and rather important song to uh, get to know. One of the things that's most interesting though, is there's this thing that's happened called the most Wuthering Heights day ever, which is a, a yearly flash mob that happens all over the world where fans of Kate Bush will gather and they'll recreate the, the red dress version of the video. There's two videos actually for Living Heights, but the famous one is the red dress. And um, they get together and they look and they dress like Kate Bush and then they do the dance to the song. And it's this big flash mob that they do to Wuthering Heights. And I, I think it started a few years ago and it's continued since. And the song has had several resurgences too. You know, it's kind of like, like huge singles, you know, it's come back. And I know that somebody sang it on The Voice and it, it became a uh, a charter again after after that happened. The, the the aspect of the song that probably had the most impact though was on Kate Bush as a star because she obviously had overnight stardom as a result of Wuthering Heights and then almost immediately rejected it. The second album, Lionheart, which is probably my favorite Kate Bush album, came out. She toured that with something called the Tour of Life and never toured again. She never did another tour after that tour of life. And by all accounts, it was incredibly successful and a really amazing show. But she was just like, Nope, I don't like that. I don't like doing it. I don't, I don't, I'm an artist, I'm a musician and I want to be in the studio. So to your point, it's a great, great observation. By 1984, before the recording of Hounds of Love, she built her own studio at her house, which see, this is the eighties. Like that was really rare for an artist to go ahead and like build a studio at their house. She did that because she didn't want to be bothered. She didn't want any label interference. She wanted to produce her own albums at home and do it in the way that she wanted to do it, which would explain why she would usually take several years. We talked about this in episode 51 with Tool. Maybe only Kate Bush matches Tool in terms of how few albums (laughs) that have been made over the stretch of her career. You know, one of the things that I I found very interesting, uh, and we've talked about the, you know, the Britney Spears microphone or the, or the most notably the Rick Savage microphone. That's the kind of, you know, uh, wireless 
microphone headset that you see now a lot of pop artists use. Um, uh, Kate Bush was apparently the first to ever use that on that tour of life that you're talking about. This is 1979. And, you know, she wanted to be able to go hands free and, and provide some choreography and some expressionist dance and those type of things during this tour. And the best way to do that was to create a, you know, headset wireless microphone. And apparently Kate Bush in 1979 was the first artist ever to do that. So, hey, even if you don't like her music, you got to respect her, uh, you know, her contributions to pro audio. And, and if you go back and watch clips of it, T, you can really tell it's very archaic. You know, it's, it's this massive version of the headset that now looks really comfortable. I mean, hell, now you, you have those where the microphone is in your hair. It was kind of like the Zach Morris cell phone. You know, yes, yeah. to, it's like yeah. literally a, like the size of and probably as heavy as a, a brick that has a huge antenna on it. Yeah. Yeah. And it like bounced around a lot, you know, yeah. so it was before they kind of got the steadiness of it. Right. Primitive so, version of it. Yeah. yeah. Very much so. But, but yeah, she, I mean, so she was very innovative, you know, both musically and otherwise, but she rejected touring and she said, I'm just going to, you know, it's a little bit like what the Beatles did in the, in the sense of you know, we're studio artists and we don't want to have to worry about making music that's easy to reproduce live. We want to make the the songs and the sound and the sonic qualities that we want to do. And so that's what she dedicated herself to. And that's what takes us into Hounds of Love. So let's get in our little, you know, time machine that we've built here. We're going to go eight years forward from 1977 to 1985. We were five years old, T. And I think it's important as we go through the record that this thing was made in 1985, right? It's, it's super important to think about that because in a lot of ways, this album is very ahead of its time and you can connect a lot of it to today's sounds, but it was, it was 1985. I mean, we're, we're in the era right now where MTV was kind of a new thing and lots of eighties pop and lots of, you know, pop radio and some of those things that we all associate with the eighties. Well, you know, Kate Bush is obviously coming along and creating something very different. But she used some of the tools that were popular at the time. We'll talk about those as we go. So we're going to kick off Hounds of Love now with what became her biggest hit in America. She wanted it to be called Deal With God, which is a great title because it's got all sorts of different dual meanings, right? And she proposed that to the record company. She lost this battle. This is one of the few concessions that Kate Bush had to make with EMI. Because they said, no, we're, it's going to be your first single and we're going to call it Running Up That Hill. So she fought hard to get the parentheses, a deal with God. And, and so technically it is Running Up That Hill, a deal with God, and it kicks off Hounds of Love. Yeah, Kate will only refer to the song as Deal With God. She stubbornly will not agree to the running up that hill title. But when I was, you know, discovering Kate Bush, this was one of those songs too where I was like, oh, I know that. I mean, did, you know this song, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is probably her most well-known and uh, probably the uh, most uh, accessible, I would say, certainly on this record, maybe even in her entire catalog. So not... Not terribly surprising, you know, it's got more of a catchy sort of pop sensibility to it, especially around this time. You know, there were a lot of singles, uh, you know, when you look at kind of like the, the Sheena Easton type stuff and, um, 
producing, you know, kind of pop, but, but more of a, a deep, you know, kind of, kind of reverby, you know, sort of sound. Melissa Manchester is another one, you know, so it, it fit in, you know, well commercially. I'm sure that was not her intent. I don't think it ever was her intent. Um, but yeah, certainly probably her, her song with the most pop sensibility. And I'm not sure, I'm not terribly surprised the record company sort of took control of that track in a way, knowing that it was one that they wanted to package and, and sort of, um, utilized to shift some units of Hounds of Love. Well, what's interesting to you is that Hounds of Love followed an album called The Dreaming, which came out in 1980. And The Dreaming was a commercial flop. It failed miserably because it's so experimental. I mean, it's just all over the place. Now, in hindsight, we, you know, people have decided that The Dreaming is some sort of masterpiece. But at the time, m- most people hated it. And so EMI was licking their chops when they heard Running Up That Hill because you know, not only was it catchy, but it, it, it really did just have tremendous commercial appeal as a dance song. Because one of the elements that made this song really popular was the 12-inch remix. I mean, this song became a dance club hit, yeah. which is kind of hilarious to think about, you know? And especially considering the subject matter. You know, we talked about this in the Tool episode. We're not big lyric guys, but this song is incredibly deep. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's about switching places with God and trying to, you know, like see the world through his eyes. And it's kind of angry. And it, it, I mean, this is not like a, this is not the feel good hit of the summer yet. It became this dance club hit. It goes to show you that when people are dancing at a club, they don't care what people are singing about. They just care about the beat. Yeah. You know, and it seems like, um, I mean, obviously there are countless artists that, that note Kate Bush is a huge influence and this song kind of helps you understand how some of those artists, I mean, you know, Annie Lennox is one and you're sure, you know, one of my favorites. They love Kate Bush. Um, Stevie Nicks has given Kate Bush praise. Um, Dido, who I'm a huge fan of. And, and you can hear a little bit more, I think, on Running Up That Hill more than some of the other work where that bridge of her being a major influence on a lot of pop and more commercially pop artists, even artists that wrote sort of catchy, upbeat tunes. Um, you know, you can see where that influence came through. Um, now, you know, it's not like every other song other than this she ever did was like melodramatic and depressing or something or, or, or you know, over the top avant-garde, but certainly, you know, this one, I think when you listen to it helps you understand versus some of the um, tracks, you know, from these artists that have listed her as an influence, you can kind of bridge those two things and see why. For sure. And and it, it kicks off a side one that is pretty damn commercial. You know, it's got four songs on it, three of which were hits. And um, you can tell that there were, there, there was a dedication to making things just a little more tangible. And the, the second side, which we'll get to, is completely not that. I mean, it's an art, it's an art piece. The videos were key to all these things. And, and the second track on the album, the title track, is, is certainly no exception. The video is a key part of, of its success. And that is the title track, which is Hounds of Love. So Kate Bush did finally do a few more shows in 2014. She did this residency called Before the Dawn. 
in London and, and Hounds of Love was one of the songs that was added to the set list. So she must like it. Others liked it as well. Q Magazine said it was number 21 in the top 50 greatest British songs of all time. So again, just this, the heaps of acclaim that come to Kate Bush are, are pretty frequent. But um, you know, to think of this song as a hit is pretty remarkable because it's very avant-garde. You know, it starts off with a sample, which at the time was not something common. And it's got this kind of, you know, odd-timed, offbeat drum percussion beat. And with her singing kind of wildly over the top, but uh, it, it kind of showed you that she was kind of hot at this moment because even even this particular song became a hit. What do you think of Hounds of Love? Yeah, I, I think it's cool. You know, the the uh, sort of strings that carry it along are, are you know, treated nicely. Um, you know, she's very creative. I mean, there's no question. And a, a lot of synthesizer elements, a lot of, you know, sampling um, technology and those type of things that that really a lot of people weren't doing, especially around this time. You know, this is still sort of front half of the 80s. So a lot of innovative stuff. Um, and there, there are a lot of cool uh, electronic synthesized uh, string treatments really throughout this record. But, you know, yeah, the title track uh, features that nicely. It's you know, again, it's got some more upbeat sort of uh, pop sensibility to it. This was, you know, rather uh, commercial friendly, especially by uh, by Kate's standards. And yeah, I think it's a great track, too. You know, I think it's one that kind of shows that, uh, uh, you know, the, the record wasn't afraid to, you know, be at least to your point on the front half to be fairly upbeat and fairly uh, digestible, which her music wasn't always that in, in all cases. And in all uh, different eras, but I think people realized uh, again, you know, to your point about the, the the album that preceded this, that this one was moving along in a little bit more of a straightforward direction, at least early on. Two key elements of of the whole album, and really this phase of Kate Bush's career is the Fairlight CMI, which is an early synthesizer and sampler. So that's you know these samples are real samples that were done through the Fairlight, and then the uh, Lindrum, which is some of the early drum machines, early drum programming that really has a, a very distinct sound and you can hear that throughout. So there's some real percussion going on in this, in this album, but a lot of it is that Lindrum programming and, uh, you know, gives it kind of a signature sound for sure. Did you right. go see her during this 2014 run or <laughs> did she come to the U S no, no, it was just okay. in London. Okay. And in all honesty, if very ironically that you, that you mentioned that because Blake, who we heard from earlier, yeah, indeed. was uh, fairly recently born in, in, when the, when the uh, residency occurred in London. And if that hadn't been the case, I probably would have flown over there and gone. I, I wanted to go so bad. I actually stayed up for the on sale just to see if I could get tickets. And the whole thing sold out in like 14 minutes, like 32 shows or something like that. Mm. sold out in like 14 minutes. So, so she played at the same place the, the, the whole time? Or? Yeah. Yeah, okay. it wasn't a tour, it was a residency. So, I mean, it was an extravagant show. She yeah. did um, material off of Ariel, kind of one of the song cycles on Ariel. And then the second set was her doing the ninth wave, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and just a few other songs sprinkled in. And that was it. I mean, there's a ton of theatrics and costumes. And, you know, she, she's, she's a true artist in the way she wants to present her music. So she was very picky about it. But no, man, I didn't go. And, you know, I wish I would have, but uh, 
maybe she'll do one more. Who knows? I, I, it's hard to say, you know, who knows post pandemic, what artists are going to do. Maybe, maybe she'll uh, do another run of shows. And if she does tea, I'm going, I don't care where it is. It could be on Mars and I'll find my way there. <laughs> I'll join Richard Branson and uh, I'll hitch a ride with them and go to the show. Yeah. Yeah. Track three, yet another single, yet another hit. If you can believe it, she's turned into a hit making machine all of a sudden. And that is the big sky. Yeah, I love the last couple of minutes. She goes into this kind of big celebration at the end. And to your point, you know, some of her music building up to Hounds of Love was, was not, you know, we've already talked about not being necessarily feel good, but Big Sky has this sort of majestic celebratory feel to it. It was a hit. It actually notched her, if you can believe it, a nomination for Best Female Video at the MTV Video Music Awards in 1987. So how do you feel about the Big Sky? Yeah. I mean, three tracks into this, it's a, it's a pretty nice listen. It's, it's a pretty easy listen. I, you know, uh, I didn't expect it to be quite that, um, digestible, you know, now, of course we haven't talked about the back half yet, but, uh, yeah, you know, I think it comes out really nice and, you know, certainly three songs that, um, I'm sure those that may have been looking for something from her that may be, a little bit more straightforward, a little bit simpler, you know, this, this chugging, um, drum thing that you hear on running up that hill and on the big sky is really neat. So yeah, I think the first three tracks on this are very, uh, easy to absorb and are all pretty, um, quite honestly, pretty commercial sounding right out of the gate. And I'm sure there were a lot of people that probably didn't like that. If you were a hardcore fan of her experimental work, like you saw on the uh, previous record. And, and of course, I'm sure there were plenty that thought it was great, you know, to see an artist like her execute on something that for the more casual listener is a little bit more digestible. Kind of your first moment of experimentation and atmosphere, which trademarks of her sound during her whole career comes with track four, which is mother stands for comfort. So this is that first appearance from Eberhard Weber. And I'd see, I, I just love the bass in this song. You know, he, I mean, he was a tremendous bass player, kind of played the upright stand-up bass, played some double bass. And I, I just think he brings something to this song. E- even if you see it as kind of a boring, dreary song, that bass line is pretty killer. Yeah. And, you know, there's some instrumentation stuff going on. That's pretty cool. I mean, that tickling piano is kind of nice and unexpected. Um, I think it's well produced. You know, you certainly have uh, some electronica, you know, uh, and percussively that's sort of taking you through it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting again, you know, it, and it's, I think after the first three songs being fairly straightforward and dare I say it somewhat poppy, you know, getting this in track four is probably the right spot. Um, and, and obviously sets up another, uh, you know, well-known and, and, and beloved and certainly uh, uh, one of her more commercial tunes uh, in track five. And what does track five have in common with animal house? Well, we'll tell you as we look at cloud busting. (laughs) 
what does cloud busting have in common with Animal House? They both include Donald Sutherland. <laughs> oh, Jennings. Jennings. Jennings makes an appearance. And it, yeah. looking a bit like Jennings. That's why I bring it up because th- this is an absolutely famous video. You've got Kate acting as she did in all of her videos. I mean, she really was the actress in all of her videos as a little boy. And Donald Sutherland as her dad, as they went cloud busting, the video brilliantly tells the story of this really touching song. If you really get into the theme of it, it's, it's an incredibly moving piece of music and, and lyric. He could have ruined that whole thing by, uh, you know, walking out into the kitchen, reaching for something in, in one of the, uh, you know, cabinets and showing off his big bare ass. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like he did when he was uh, Jennings, that would have ruined the whole vibe of the cloud busting video. I'm I'm glad he didn't do that. Actually. Donald Sutherland as Jennings. Yeah. Once was enough to see like his like big hairy ass. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at the, before the dawn shows in 2014, she actually closed. This was the encore uh, cloud busting was, I think she's always had a, a pretty big respect for this song. Again, looking at it, you know, five minutes, six seconds long. And, uh, but a huge hit and you can see why, I mean, even more than running up that hill, I think this song, this song really combines the commercial appeal. It's just a gorgeous composition. It really is. And like I said, you know, very emotional and something that I think connected with a lot of listeners. This was the second single. This actually peaked at number 20 on the UK charts. This one did not cross over to America. You can kind of see why it's a little bit out there for American tastes, but I mean, this was a huge song for her. And, and you look at some of the music that took Hounds of Love from being a good album to sort of this legendary album. I think Cloud Busting certainly fills that category. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, at the, the intro, you almost feel like you're hearing like a Eleanor Rigby type thing because it starts really with just the strings in her voice and then everything else kind of builds as these additional layers come in. So, um, yeah, I think it's probably, a, I think it's a high point really on the record. And, you know, again, something that's, Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Dare I say it, a little dancey, um, at least from a mid-tempo sense. But uh, yeah, I, I think you know, cloud busting. I'm not terribly surprised that she used that as the encore for those uh, 2014 shows. It too received the 12-inch single treatment, so there's a remix of it. Again, kind of <laughs> became a dance club thing, you know. So T, now we flip the album over. Side two is a song cycle and none of these songs are intended to listen to individually. It's, it's meant to be a, an entire piece. Actually, Kate describes it as a film. She really considers this to be a film in music and that is the ninth wave. So the ninth wave is, it's a story. It's the story of uh, a woman drowning and all of the things that happen for somebody who's literally in water for a long period of time, doesn't know if they're going to live. And we'll get into kind of the elements of this story. There's lots of different interpretations, of course, but Kate had mentioned that she was just stunned by this terrifying image of what it'd be like to be stuck in water and have to be rescued and having to stay awake. You know, most people say that, you know, the process of drowning actually has to do with you fall asleep and you become exhausted. So the, the story is of a character who's, who ends up in water by herself and has to keep herself awake for long enough to be rescued and kind of all of the hallucinations and all the things that might happen during that process. So it's a very interesting concept. The lyrics are pretty fascinating to follow along. And musically, obviously, it does some things that are 
not quite as mainstream as side one, to say the least. So, T, we'll listen to the ninth wave. Uh, we'll kind of analyze it on the whole, but let's just blast through, you know, the, the various elements of it. So it starts with kind of the explanation of this particular character who has a life preserver on, but nothing else and nobody else around her. She's ended up in water and she talks about the situation in the opening, really beautiful melody, which is in Dream of Sheep. There's like so much Tori Amos here too, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I got to think that like, she was like a huge fan because there's, you know, especially when she's like doing this whimsical solo piano stuff, it's like complete, you know, it's, it's a great read T in the BBC documentary about Kate Bush. Tori Amos is one of the talking heads and basically says, I wouldn't have a career if it weren't Kate Bush. It's <laughs> Tori Amos and um, St. Vincent are kind of the two artists that I remember the most. And you can totally hear, yeah, I mean, you can hear Kate Bush all over that for sure. So in Dream of Sheep, this goes into Under Ice, which then starts to explain kind of the things that our character is going through as she's thinking about life and death being stuck on this body of water. So Under Ice. And the music starts to get scarier and darker because you're being challenged on whether you're going to keep listening, right? In the same way that the character is being challenged that she's going to fight through this and stay alive and stay awake. So there's lots of, you know, Kate is always playing with the way that sounds support lyrics. And it's pretty well known that this piece gets really scary because trying to test the listener, is the listener going to make it through this in the same way that is the character going to make it through this? So interesting uh, elements going on there, the connection between music and lyrics. Then it gets really weird <laughs> as you get into the third piece of this, which is Waking the Witch. And T, what's going on here is like the hallucinations, you know, like the paranoia, the, the thoughts that run through your head as you're trying to stay alive and stay awake. It's getting pretty out there, isn't it? I'm glad you're kind of explaining this because, you know, my first, you know, couple listens, I was like, what the, what the, what the, <laughs> what the shit, what is going on here? This is, this is chaos. But, you know, you when know. I first listened to the song cycle, I was like, I don't like this. But it is one of those rare examples that when you learn the story and you figure out what she's doing artistically, it's, it's, it makes a huge difference for sure. Next comes actually my favorite bit of the whole cycle, which is uh, watching you without me. And what you'll hear here, the, the symbolism of the music is supposed to be a ticking clock. It's supposed to be measuring time. So you hear this relentless sort of backbeat. And I always love when artists experiment over kind of a relentless backbeat. You know, we've talked about that before with Phil Collins and Face Value. 
And watching you without me has that element to it because you're thinking about time, you're thinking about cold, all these sort of elements. And I'll explain another element of it too after we hear the clip. Go ahead, T. Cool baseline, so you hear the monotonous that's supposed to be a ticking clock. And then those voices that are inaudible is supposed to represent uh, lips being frozen shut. So they're trying to show the character is becoming frozen, losing control to make words. And so that's why you hear those kind of inaudible voices that go along with the lyrics coming from Kate Bush. So you still with me too? You're still in here? <laughs> I'm, I'm with you, buddy. No, I, you know, I actually think musically watching you without me holds up really well. I mean, yeah, yeah. it almost, you know, sounds like uh, what you might hear in modern uh, festival rock type of a uh, approach. And oh, and, don't ruin it for us. T. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, in, in a way, uh, again, a lot of creativity, a lot of uses of some of these kind of electronic beats and layers and elements that, you know, are really interesting. So, yeah, I think, I mean, th this is a type of, of song where you can really hear a lot of influence, you know, even throughout, you know, more recent times uh, on this one. So it's, 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 I think it's kind of an interesting, notable track in that way. I mean, T, do you think Radiohead would even be Radiohead without this? I mean, again, this is 1985. This is, yeah. this is so experimental. Yeah. For that yeah. time period. You know? Definitely. From, a, from the standpoint of utilizing electronica and being experimental. Yeah. There's a lot of, lot, of, lot of boundary pushing going on here. This might be considered the climax of the story. This is Jig of Life. It, it's a reminder, too, of Kate Bush's kind of Irish heritage because it truly is a jig. And uh, there's a few different symbolic elements to this as well. This is where the character comes into contact with her future self. And her future self is saying, stay alive. You know, make sure that I get to this point, which is a fascinating idea. So let's check in with Jig of Life. So you've got Irish history there with the jig, which is obviously something really personal for Kate Bush, but a jig is a dance. And this is showing that English symbolism of the dance with death, which it goes all the way back to, you know, Ingmar Bergman films and this whole idea of that, you know, you dance with death. And mm -hmm. so what you see is the character dancing with death. You're seeing the future self, the future self is saying, let me live. And, and I think that jig is meant to be kind of an interlude to show this, this dance that's going on with our character as she's feeling death. And, well, and we all know that you're not a, not too big of an Ingmar Bergman kind of fan. So it <laughs> <Right>. all <laughs> right. sort of makes sense. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. But uh, I, I know that an Irish jig is kind of hard to get through. But again, thinking about the symbolism of that and really building up to the jig, you have this pretty powerful melody, this kind of powerful texture that's going on. Well, yeah, again, I mean, now you're in a story. So obviously, you know, this is no longer a, uh, um, just an audible, um, you know, music album. This is 
theatric and something that has twists and turns. And, you know, musically, you can say it's got variety, but a lot of that's contextual to the story and just makes it all the more interesting. Interesting might be one word to describe probably the most experimental part of the song cycle, maybe aside from Waking the Witch. And that is kind of what sets up the finale, which is Hello Earth. pretty ambiguous lyrically, but whatever happens in Hello Earth is meant to set the character up for the moment of either death or being rescued. And there's a desperation to it. There's some pretty amazing imagery in the lyrics. It's probably the hardest lyric to interpret in terms of the actual story, but what we do know is how it ends. So T, at this point, you get through Hello Earth. What do you think? Is the character going to make it? Is she going to make it? Uh... Knowing what I know about Kate Bush, I'd say no. I I think I think she's a (laughs) I think she's fucked. (laughs) It's an interesting take. Hopefully, I'm wrong. I like a happy ending, but uh, just as much as the next guy. But uh, I, I I think she's in big big trouble. This character. Well, Kate Bush certainly took the artistic approach and said, "Well, it's up to the listener to decide." But she said, and I always trust the artist, you know, if they intended it, they intended it. She intends that this ends with a rescue and that happens in the morning fog. And this sets up kind of the new life for our character. And you can hear that in the lyrics. But I I actually think this becomes one of the more touching and uplifting parts of not just the album, but uh, Kate Bush's entire catalog. It's very short, but it's very sweet. The morning fog. rescue it's a happy ending buddy i think it is yeah she said kiss the ground so you know that's got to be uh somebody who's uh happy that they didn't kick the bucket and uh so yeah i think we had a happy ending that's that's what i'm gonna go with at least it's a song all about gratuity she you know the character kind of names all the people she loves and kiss the ground and this this feeling of new life. And it's like through this traumatic experience of coming face to face with death and having to work to stay awake, to stay alive. Now you have a new perspective, a new lens. Or is she telling all the people that she knows and loves to kiss the ground when they, you know, visit her when she's uh-huh. dead? That's I mean, what, that is one of the interpretations. It is. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, uh, there's some that do think that it's a happy ending. And some that think that is exactly what you said. And, and Kate kind of goes with that. Like most artists, you know, it's whatever you make it, but, but she says the intention was a rescue. I bet Kate doesn't even know the answer. You know, she probably just kind of, you know, you know, those artists, right. It's kind of like, I'm going to be ambiguous and I'm going to let you, you know, so, so I don't even, she might not even know the answer, you know? 
keep everyone guessing, keep everyone guessing. No, she, and it's rare for her. It's actually really surprising that she would actually come out and, and give that indication. Say, yes, it was a rescue. It's, it's, you wouldn't guess that from her. So always unpredictable. Kate Bush, one of the many things that I love about her. So T, what do you think of the ninth wave? Obviously a little different than the first side, let alone different from everything else that was coming out in 1985. What do you think? Well, you know, I, I think obviously I see the appeal for you. I mean, I, you know, it, it does have some prog sensibility here with kind of a story arc and kind of different zigs and zags that get you there. A lot of musical variation. I mean, I get it. You know, I get it that uh, it's creative and interesting. And, and obviously when you put it in the context of this um, story arc taking place, it's pretty cool. You know, so yeah, definitely a different side two than side one. It's a it's a great Kate Bush starter album, obviously, and I'm sure that's part of the reason why you picked it is because you get kind of this commercial aspect during the front half, and then you get this progressive um, thematic storytelling theatrical kind of aspect in the back half. So you're getting kind of the two sides of Kate Bush, probably her at her most uh, commercial and then probably her at her most theatrical. You know, I'm always one for a good, solid musical opus. So uh, it was kind of a fun thing to plow through. And a strong endorsement from her to, to perform that at the 2014 shows. It shows that in a catalog that she's not always proud of. I mean, she's always moving on to the next thing. And she, she has had pretty rough things to say about some of her earlier work. This is clearly something that she's proud of as an artist and, and has continued to embrace. So, T, let's see how you embrace as we get to... Does it matter? It's an interesting question for you, T, because it's a relatively new artist for you in a new album. So what do you think? Did Hounds of Love matter? Uh, yeah. I mean, this is a super influential artist, you know, no matter how you add it up and really no matter if you like her or not. I mean, you don't, you know, Kate Bush was not terribly popular in the U.S. And, uh, you know, it's an acquired taste. Um, you know, it's kind of like when, when you drink your first beer, you know, at first you're kind of like, Oh, like, what? Well, like, mm, this is different, you know? And then you have uh, a few more and then a few more and you grow up a little bit. And, and then finally you're like, yeah, beer's awesome. You know, um, some artists are like that. I think Kate Bush is a little bit like that. I don't think there's anybody that on first listen just immediately is like, wow, that's, you know, I get it. And that's awesome. You got to work at it a little bit. You got to find some of that appreciation and appreciate some of that uniqueness, you know, and that probably takes some time. But yeah, if you're going to, I mean, I, I think it's a perfect, sometimes with these type of artists that are a little more artsy and a little more avant-garde and a little bit more unique, it, it can be hard to kind of find the right place to start. Certainly Hounds of Love seems like the perfect Kate Bush starter album in the combination of a front half that's commercial and a back half that's sort of theatrical and has a story, um, sort of concept album piece to it. Uh, I think is neat, you know, and, and in, you know, 1985, when things were so hell bent on being as commercial as, I think this is the same year where we did the Huey Lewis sports episode. And, you know, that was all about, you know, cosmetics and commercialism and those type of things. And, you know, this is probably as close to that as Kate Bush got, but clearly, as you can see from side two, she was not about to put together a compilation of commercial worthy singles. And, and that's cool. And that's cool. So I think it's a perfect starter album if you're trying to get into this artist. And I think, you know, for that reason, it was a good pick, not just for uh, our listeners who may or may not be too terribly familiar with Kate Bush, but 
for your co-host as well, who is not terribly familiar with Kate Bush coming into this. You know, I think the trademark of her, she's always trying to challenge her listeners and this album really does that. You know, the, the, the first half is stunning and it's kind of poppiness. And then the second half is this very, very challenging, very dramatic uh, piece to get through, but both very rewarding. This album is, is so heralded, you know, almost to the point where I have a hard time, you know, thinking it's as good as everybody says it is. Like I said, you know, this would be a mid-tier album for me in terms of my Kate Bush list. But you have to really admire somebody who's so authentic as an artist and, and really somebody who just doesn't care about what's going on out in the external world. She's really focused on her internal leanings and in, in her internal creativity as an artist. I mean, she is just a lovely, lovely human being. You, you listen to interviews with her. She doesn't do many, but when she does, she's just sweet and introspective and devastatingly clever and just absolutely lovely. But she also has really clear direction of what she wants to do as an artist. She didn't want stardom. She didn't want to be a pop star. She wanted to make albums and make challenging music. And it matters in that sense, for sure. And I I hope that young listeners continue to discover her because it's very different, but it can be very rewarding to get into for sure. So, all right, see, let's put Hounds of Love on the final cut. Is it on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or tea for you? Is Hounds of Love in the for sale bin? T, where do you put it? I'm going to go collecting dust nubs. I, you know, I think that it's uh, it's important. I think that it's a great artist to get into. It's not really my thing. I mean, I, I you know, I'm going to keep digging on Kate Bush and trying to, you know, see if I can get my arms around it. I think it's kind of easily parodied. I think sometimes it's melodramatic. You know, I do think that her voice and her approach sometimes takes some getting used to. So it's an artist that I, I look forward to learning more about. I'm going collecting dust just simply because I, I do think she's a very important artist, very influential. And this is a great way to kind of start your uh, Kate Bush journey. And who knows, maybe I'll figure that out someday. I, you know, so far, everything I've tried hasn't really connected uh, fully. And who knows, maybe I'll, uh, I'll dig into it and understand it further as time goes on and as I become more mature. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know if that's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, it won't. It won't believe me. T, where, but, uh, where would you put the 45 of Wuthering Heights? Since we looked at that <laughs> as well. Uh, well, a single song, it's always a little bit tough. I, you know, I think that Wuthering Heights is a, is, is a great single. You know, I think that it's, uh, it's a classic, you know, and, uh, and one that uh, considering the year that it came out, considering, you know, her age considering that it was really kind of her first and, and most notable and, and uh, I think most successful single, at least globally, um, is really interesting. I'm, I'm glad you included it. It's a, it's a hell of a song. How about you, Nub? What's your final cut on this one, buddy? I've got Wuthering Heights on the turntable. I just think it's a really, really important single and a song that I love. You know, it's one thing to just respect something for its role in music history. It's another thing to actually like it. I love the song. I love the vocal performance. I love the composition. Love the guitar solo at the end. I think the bridge is a really stunning piece of, of middle section writing. I just, I love it. In terms of Hounds of Love, I've got that in the collection. It's a commitment to listen to top to bottom. And the reality is on the first half, you know, I like the songs. I, I think they're all strong, 
but none of them to me are, are amazing. You know, they're, they're, they're really good singles and it showed her pushing herself to do things in a little bit more of a concise fashion. The second half, I love the story. I love the way the music supports the story. It's not something I'm going to listen to regularly top to bottom, but this album is something that should be in a collection. I think if you're going to have a well-rounded collection, it should include Kate Bush. And if you're going to include Kate Bush, unless you want to become a freak like me and own everything, Hounds of Love is probably the title that you want to add. So solid in the collection, maybe a little bit too out there for most to be on the turntable. And uh, I do listen to, to it regularly enough to keep it from collecting too much dust. And hey, you know, I mean, if, if there was no Kate Bush, I don't think Eurasia would be the same, according to Andy Bell. So, you know, that, that alone uh, deserves my respect. There you go. You know what, T? You know, another element of respect, you've earned my respect by just getting through this episode and, and listening to something that I know was new for you. And I'll tell you what, man, I respect you. You deserve, oh, you. you deserve my respect. Well, there's a first time for everything. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate <laughs> that. Let's wrap it up, T, as we look at uh, what is uh, going in our head. Oh, yeah, Dolores, Dolores. Do you think Dolores was influenced by Kate Bush? I mean, she had to be. Come on. Oh, hell yeah. So you get Irish. Uh, come on. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Well, I guess we'll never know because um, she's dead. <laughs> right, right. She's dead. They're dead. Are you happy? She's dead. She's dead. Yeah. <laughs> T3 songs ringing in your head. What do you got? All right, buddy. Well, the first I'm going to go with is uh, Keen. And uh, this is a great song from those guys uh, called uh, Is It Any Wonder? You know, which is uh, really good. Really good. Yeah, that was on their uh, Under the Iron Sea record. And uh, good band that put out, put out some good stuff. Uh, it, if you, you know. want to hear the best Keen song, Clear Skies. It's a song mm. they put out on an EP. Oh, dude, it's so good. Oh, nice. Uh, the second is uh, kind of a pop uh you know, classic from the eighties, you know, the band M this is the band that did pop music, pop music. Yeah. Lizzie. Well, track two on this album, which is called New York, London, Paris, Munich is called woman make man. And it's uh, it's a really cool, uh, you know, eighties, uh, new wavy pop deal on the it deal. It sounds there. like a, like a caveman's description of giving birth woman make men. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. And, uh, it's a it's a good jam. And lastly, uh, a band that has a new album coming out next month. I'm pretty excited about it. And uh, this is the great Duran Duran. And uh, one of my favorite songs from them is New Moon on Monday and only five days through the night. So, God, I love that band. I hope they tour. I'd love to go see them. We got to go see them if they come back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll go for sure. And they all still look like they're 30. You know, they do. It's crazy. I know they look amazing. They totally I know. do. It's almost kind of not fair. So that's what's in my head. What is in your head, bud? Well, the opening track off the album for the love of strange medicine, which was from Steve Perry sometime in the nineties. I can't remember, but the track is you better wait. It's just a phenomenal song. Absolutely love it. That would be one. Second would be uh, war just put out a vinyl box set for record store day this past weekend and uh, spill the wine. You know, terrific war song. Absolutely love it. And lastly would be the super group known as Palatipus with, uh, this is with Ty Tabor from King's X, John Ming from Dream Theater, and Rod Morgenstein from Winger. Oh, all those bands suck. Jeez. Yeah, right. Yeah, terrible bands. Terrible bands. What are these guys called? Platypus. Jeez, I'm going to check out, that out. Oh, T. They put out two records in the 2000s. 
Actually, one of them might have been 1999. I mean, you 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 take Winger, Dream Theater, and King's X and put it into a blender. Yeah, that's that's yeah. tasty. Yeah, and Ty, that's you know, Ty Tabor sings lead on all the songs. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, two incredible records. The first one is When Puss Comes to Shove, and the song Willie Brown off of that is just such a jam. You should get that album too. You would absolutely love it. It's like. It's like melodic King's X mixed with just a ton of prog elements and Rod Morgenstein's drumming is just awesome. So I will do that. I will do that. All right. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, you, uh, as you have a good time over there. All right. T, thanks for, uh, all your thoughts on Hounds of Love. Go buy some Kate Bush. You need it. <laughs> and, uh, I can't wait for episode 53. We'll kick it back to you T and uh, I know it's going to be a really interesting one. I can't wait for it. Well, we're going to show some range, aren't we? We've, we just did Tool and uh, right into Kate Bush, and then we're gonna go just zigzag in another direction. So yeah, it hey, be good. show and range is what two twins in an album is all about. That Indeed and is, shirtless buddy. zooms. Indeed, it is, buddy. Yeah, I did go shirtless on this we're one. All didn't about I? show yeah, and range, and I'll tell you what, I'm cutting glass over here. It's a little chilly down here in my basement, but uh, oh, so you know, the stack of dimes right here. <laughs> oh man, for everybody else. Please take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you soon on episode 53 here on Two Twins and an Album. Two Twins and an Album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.